Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Trail to Austin. Um, my first guest that I have is is somebody that I really wanted to be my first guest because living in Austin, the uh, the environment was such that I don't want to say it was a classless society, which makes it sound horrible, but everybody could kind of be themselves. And because of that, you got to know people that you wouldn't normally get to know. You know a lot of times, if you're a tech worker, you just hang out with tech workers. If you're in the um, hospitality business, you hang out with hospitality people. But here it seems like everybody kind of really integrated. And so I chose this guest because he's kind of a little bit of everything. <laughs> and so <laughs> I want to welcome my first guest, Joel McCall. He is a um, singer-songwriter. He was the 20-year host of the O. Henry Punoff, and he um, had the distinction of being with this uh, manufactured supergroup called Up With People. So, Okay, we're going to have words about that. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, uh, for you youngsters out there, Up With People was uh, basically in sync, but co-ed. Holy crap, Bob. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Okay, let's start with that one. Okay, let's start. So, yeah, uh, how you doing? Thanks for the uh, microphone. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Uh, Up With People started in 1968. It was a traveling group of kids. It was It's a musical Peace Corps, all right? So the whole object was uh, promoting world peace one person at a time, all right? That, that sounds all rainbows and unicorns. But the other side of that coin was it – as an experience for the people in the group, it was educational, it was inspiring, and it was empowering. Uh, besides the fact we got to do things that are just uh, uh, out of the ordinary, I'll, I'll put it. I was in it for three years, uh, uh, did tours for American Airlines and General Electric and Played at the World's Fair for six months. Uh, did tours for the State Department. Went to Australia. Was there during the uh, grand opening of the Sydney Opera House. Uh, played for the King and Queen of Belgium twice. Uh, you know, uh, several of my friends. I mean, it's it was a worldwide experience. Uh, and. So somewhere in there, you guys shot a Coke commercial or something? No, no, <laughs> and that's that's one of the fallacies, uh, because there was a group of happy kids singing "I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing." It was not up with people. Ironically, the uh, guy who started producing the Up with People show in 1972, which was my first year, was a guy named David Mackay, who's a pretty famous producer from England uh, was producing a group called the New Seekers who you may or may not know uh, had several top 40 hits in the late 60s, early 70s one of which was I'd like to teach the world to sing and they did the commercial and they decided somebody decided that boy this would be a good 
single, and so they wrote some more verses, and lo and behold, it became a number one hit. So, but that was not up with people. <laughs> we did, however, do a commercial for Sears for Free Spirit Bikes. Okay. In 1972. So, uh, that was a, another cast that was cast B in 1972, and they were filmed riding bicycles through uh, the Black Forest of Germany. So, And you missed out on the Super Bowl. I missed you missed out. People's the done four of them, and I've missed all of them. But, uh, I have very, very good friends that were instrumental in those shows. Cool. So you grew up outside of uh, Tulsa, right? Bartlesville. Right. So did you start with music at an early age? No. As a matter of fact, um, I came from a pretty non-musical family, uh, and ex- extended family even was pretty non-musical. Uh, started picking up guitar senior year, uh, June. Summer between junior and senior year, my friend Tommy Allen, uh, he and I were uh, teammates on the swimming team, uh, paired up with another swimmer, Woody, Ron Woodburn, and uh, we wrote some funny lyrics to songs, and uh, Tommy showed me where to put my fingers on a bass guitar <laughs> so we could kind of be like a band didn't have much concept of rhythm or key signatures or anything. I just knew to put my fingers on the dots at this certain time in the song. Uh, so when it, from growing up from there, you went to the wrong university in Oklahoma. Uh, to the university in Oklahoma. What did you study there? Well, I was ostensibly pre-med, via starting out with invertebrate and zoology and moving into psychology and organic chemistry kicked my butt. Uh, all along in this journey, I uh, learned how to smoke marijuana and discovered guitar playing is pretty cool and uh, ultimately left OU in 1972 and joined up with people. I had every intention of going back. But you know what they say about the road to hell. Yes, so. absolutely. Or the road to Austin. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> now that's just paved with uh, other license plates that are moving oh, here constantly. That, that's true. Yes. So um, from there, you you just kicked around playing music for a while? and Well, I did up with people for three years. My last gig with them was at the World's Fair in Spokane, Washington, and um, – I discovered I really like the mountains and I uh, really like skiing. So uh, uh, music helped feed my skiing addiction. I, I played a circuit of ski resorts, so I'd, <laughs> I'd ski all day and then play music at night. That doesn't sound like a bad life. It was not a bad life <laughs> at all. Uh, partnered up with a guy named Mark Beeson, who is a very successful songwriter in Nashville now. We put a little duo together and moved to L.A. to seek fame and fortune. We found neither. Uh, he he found a little more fame than I did. I don't think either one of us found much fortune. Uh, ended up leaving L.A., moving to Phoenix, where I lived for several years. Uh, 
had a six-piece band. Uh, we this is during the disco era, so that was uh, pretty. Oh, tell me, you were not playing disco. <laughs> we played whatever we needed to play to make money. Okay. And so yeah, we've done nights on Broadway, and we had oh. white three-piece suits. And, but we also were fairly ambitious. We did original music. I'd, I'd been writing music this whole time. Uh, it's you know in the seventies there was it, there were ears to listen to original mm-hmm. music. There just wasn't money uh, for the vast majority. So to make a living playing music is you did you played other people's songs and you put yours in as you could uh, so you you can get away with it. Uh, Ended up, oh, so the band, Mm -hmm. six-piece band, five of the members were from Up With People, were Up With People alumni, which was kind of interesting. Uh, Out of that band, I ended up playing in a duo with a guy named Jim Tracy who was a bass player in my second cast and up with people and the bass player in the band. So all told, he and I played together for 15 years. Yeah, that's a pretty long time to play with one individual. It's longer than any of my marriages. There you go. So, uh, And he and I moved to Austin February 2nd of 81. Okay, so was, that's, you know, that's part of this podcast is finding out. How what, we ended up. Yeah, finding out how you ended up here, what what drove you to come here? Well, uh, there was a guy named Rusty Weir, a uh, pretty well-known singer-songwriter from, uh, from mm-hmm. Austin. And uh, he would go on the road. Uh, some friends of ours owned a bar in Colorado, and he called us up and said, Hey, uh, this guy Rusty Weir is coming up to play. Do you guys want to come up and open for him? And this is when we were living in Phoenix. Yeah. And so, yeah, absolutely. Uh, went up to uh, Fraser, Colorado, the Crooked Creek Saloon, and uh, opened for him. We became really good friends. And uh, uh, so we would open for him, and then we'd be his backup band. And uh, we did this several times. Uh, and the Crooked Creek was, we would play there once a month. We'd make the drive up from Phoenix. Uh, so Rusty had a friend travel with him. It's 1980. Uh, who was moving to Austin and convinced us to move to Austin and partner with him in a barbecue restaurant. Uh-oh. And uh, we had pretty much gone as far as we could in Phoenix and so uh, being young and uh, pretty rootless not ruthless but rootless uh, we decided to move to Austin and as a matter of fact the night we made the decision was the night John Lennon was killed Oh, so that's a night that's burned into my uh, memory Uh, so Rusty filled our heads with tales of of all the places to play in Austin and the checkered flag and 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 above all, the Armadillo World Headquarters. Oh, yeah. Yeah, It was like, I mean, we had heard of it, and so we were really excited. uh, 
we arrived in Austin on Groundhog Day, February 2nd, 1981, which was exactly 30 days to the day that they tore the armadillo down. Right. Uh, for you people who aren't longtime Austin residents, one of the um, one of the famous sayings around here is, it ain't been the same since they tore the armadillo down. That's so that's... So, <laughs> I mean, one of the first things we did was, uh, you know, head down to uh, the Armadillo World Headquarters and saw a brand new fresh parking lot. Uh, and it was it was disquieting, but uh, we made the best of it. Well, for me, it was, you know, I got here after the uh, Armadillo was torn down, so for me it was Liberty Lunch. Oh, when yeah. A sad day for me. A sad day for all of us. And, you know, it's still continuing. 38 years later, venues are falling by the wayside. Venerable venues, yes. as it were. Uh, so you've made it to Austin at this point. Yeah. And then somehow you get involved in this O. Henry Punoff. And oh, I want you to take a minute to explain it because I'm sure a lot of people that live here don't even know this goes on. Maybe not a bad thing. <laughs> uh, the O. Henry Museum, O. Henry, the short story writer, the, mm-hmm. a very famous short story writer, uh, actually lived in Austin for a while. Uh, and his house is uh, was moved, uh, but it's at Fifth and Natchez. And... Uh, in 1978, a guy named Steve Uzell. Okay, I need to back up. Okay. There's the first weekend of May, there was the Pecan Street Festival, which is the original name for 6th Street. Right. And that's where you would have artisans, a typical street fair, right? Uh, as was common back in those days, there was some um, intoxicating going on. <laughs> and people would congregate behind the O. Henry Museum because it was a city park, Brushy Square Park. And uh, as is common with intoxication, stories start being told. And uh, Steve Uzell uh, organized these stories. And, organized? <laughs> and uh, passed the plate passed the hat uh, to raise money for the O'Henry Museum because it needed a new roof. And so it kind of morphed into who could tell the shaggiest dog story. Well, by the time I got here in 81, it was an event. It was the O'Henry World Championship Pun Off Contest, uh, which was all kind of tongue-in-cheek because the world was pretty small. But uh, it was gaining rapidly in popularity. Um, the Somehow I got talked into coming down to this thing. Uh, and a guy named Caesar, he was our uh, uh, beer rep. No, no, it wasn't our, he, he uh, provided us with... Uh, operated games for the bar that we uh, and unbeknownst to me entered me in the contest uh-huh. so I'm going to take a second here to explain what the contest is 
there were two parts to it. There's the punniest of show, which is where contestants get up and they have 90 seconds to, to deliver a pun. And back in those days, it ultimately was a shaggy dog story, a, a story that culminates in a groaner pun, right? The second part was uh, pun slingers, or high lies and low puns, as we called it back then, where contestants would go up two at a time, draw a subject from a fishbowl. Contestant number one would have five seconds to make a pun on it. Contestant number two then had five seconds to make a new pun on it and go back and forth until someone couldn't make a pun or they'd repeated a pun. Uh, That's the one I recall seeing as, you know, for as long as I could stand there and take it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's pretty painful. And back in those days, it was it was the Wild West. I mean, if Steve decided you really sucked, he'd say, okay, you lose, get off the stage. But the first year, I won. And uh, ignorance is... Still have that trophy, huh? <laughs> you know, the trophy was a, a horse's ass. I don't know where it is. <laughs> but uh, uh, so this whole punning thing is stuff we would do on the bus and up with people. Right. Uh, so it was something I was used to. So anyway, won it. Second year, went back and uh, uh, had a prepared pun that also won. So uh, the third year, uh, Steve's partner, Peter, had uh, passed away from AIDS. And so mm-hmm. Steve asked me if I'd care to help him emcee the event. And so I did. I can't remember if it was my third year or fourth year anyway. I'm sure it was... Uh, I'm sure I'd gone in and gotten my butt kicked a few times. But anyway, and so I had started helping Steve emcee the thing. And it was a lot of fun. Steve Uzel is one of the most talented people I know. Uh, what he, else does he do? Pardon me? What else does he do besides pun? Oh, he was a comedian. He was, oh, okay. Uh, he was an actor. He did commercials. Um, and the thing grew. Uh, we had uh, Bob Faves, the cartoonist that did Frank and Ernest as a judge. Molly Ivins was a judge. Uh, um, it got bigger and bigger. We got uh, GSD&M to donate uh, Southwest Airlines tickets to anywhere as prizes. You know, we had nice. all these ideas of doing regional competitions throughout the <laughs> country and it culminating in a giant national championship. Super Bowl of pun. <laughs> this was about the time when the city of Austin decided it was their event. And so there was a big uh, to-do about that, which uh, culminated with Steve getting really pissed off and saying, screw it, and left out, went to L.A. Okay, a little aside here. He took a job as a warm-up slash filler man, uh, keeping audiences entertained during live tapings of sitcoms. From what I've heard, that's a decent gig. It's a decent gig, but it's incredibly hard because sometimes there'll be two hours between takes as they're changing scenes and things. 
and he's there on just improvising for two hours. Anyway, uh, my hat's off to him on that. Uh, so I took over being the MC, the sole MC, sole judge and producer. Ultimately, uh, a guy named Gary Halleck joined in and started taking uh, a lot of the producing responsibilities. And uh, I was more than happy to uh, hand all that over. Ultimately, I spent about 20 years as the judge and the MC. That's whew, quite a long time to spend punning. <laughs> oh, Lord, punishment. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh. Grown, I and it's probably just it's probably just bred into you at this point, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's one of the reasons I had to retire. <laughs> I couldn't take it anymore. So, um, so part of the other thing on this is, you know, as we ask these questions about your experience with Austin, you know, I don't want to ask what's the most unique thing you've seen in Austin, but kind sure. of. What's something that really sticks out in your mind is something really interesting and cool that yeah, you've got to see or do here? Well, more than just one singular thing, because there's, there's bunches. I've been here 38 years. Uh, having played music all around the country, uh, every town, every city has a different feel to it as far as, you know, specifically about music. There's a way music is played. There's a way musicians interact with each other. There's a certain hierarchy of, of who does what. You know, the really, really cool thing about Austin is, at least the way I remember it, you know, Everything's changing these days because I'm an old guy and, <laughs> God damn it, get off my lawn. But um, uh, was it's a big family. Everybody plays with everybody. You know, that's what I was trying to allude to earlier. Is yeah. that you don't feel the separation of people here that you do in other cities. You know, like this group stays yeah. with its group and this group stays over here. Everybody just kind of blends in together here. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and on any given night, you can go hear a Grammy Award winning artist play, or you can hear uh, just monsters just killing it. And uh, as a solo singer songwriter, one of my greatest joys in life musically is doing song swaps and playing with different people. Uh, and so, okay, kind of a humorous aside. Uh, one of the things in Austin is uh, we don't rehearse. All right, that's, okay. <laughs> that, this is one of the, that's not completely true, but when you do a song swap, right, that you're sitting down and you're playing with each other, you may or may not know the song, but this is kind of the joy of improvisation. And uh, it's, oh, God, it, it, it's great. It, it's where the magic happens in music. Right. So I'll go back to Arizona, or I'll, I'll play with some other friends, and I'll, I'll say, well, let's play music. Let's say, well, we haven't rehearsed it yet. 
It's like rehearse, practice. Now, I, I, you know, a lot of times when I've been doing, um, going out and seeing different music, it's interesting. You'll see somebody call somebody up as yeah. a guest on stage, and they sit just, in. yeah, sit in, and and it always winds up sounding excellent. Well, and it's different than the last time they played it, right? And it's not going to be like the next time they played it, and uh, it's. You know, it's kind of the Austin way. You know, uh, I know the times I've spent in Arizona and California. That's that wasn't the mo. You know, right. Uh, so I get to play on a monthly basis. I get to play with just some outstanding musicians, and uh, makes me a better player. Uh, and it's just fun. Time flies. Yeah, no, I'm sure. Speaking of which, so you're, you're currently still playing places. I am. Would you like to plug your places you're playing? Well, I have a monthly residency at New World Deli. Okay. We talked about the demise of venues. Right. New World Deli has been on the drag at, you know, 41st and Guadalupe, just north of campus, for 25 years, you know, and they've have continually offered uh, organic music is the best way to put it. Yeah, those used to, used to have more of those around here. That used did to that. be a bunch. Yeah. You know, financially, it's it's hard. It, it's, it's a very difficult economic model. And with the way Austin is growing and the big beef and one of the major issues going on is with the rising property values, right? skyrocketing property values, the property taxes are killing these venues that are operating on a really thin margin anyway. And uh, so I feel very lucky to be associated with New World Deli. Yeah, no, I think it's an excellent um, venue for you to play in, having been there a few times and seen it myself. So it's uh, it's it's kind of a blast of old Austin. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of um, the little places that used to exist before they became high rises downtown. You know that you could just walk in and see anybody at Emma Joe's. Yeah. So um, also, um, you have an album. <laughs> well, I do, and it's 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 old. It's it's six years old. It's called uh, uh, the Return of Bosco Martin. It's available on my website. And plug your website. JoelMcCall.com. That's J-O-E-L-M-C-C-O-L-L.com. Hope to be recording a new one this summer. I've got 18 songs ready to go. Excellent. Oh, good. Yeah. So uh, looking forward to that. I I do donate all the proceeds from... uh, uh, Bosco Martin to the Colon Cancer Alliance. So uh, if you feel so inclined, certainly appreciate your, your uh, checking it out. Oh, I have one more question I wanted to ask you, and I just remembered it now. Okay. Is um, you recently found out something about your background and um, maybe how you came upon that musical uh, bug. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> okay, so I'm adopted. I guess you need to set that as kind of a 
the starting point. I'm adopted. I knew I was adopted. Always knew I was adopted. Uh, and when my mother passed away in '94, uh, when we were cleaning out her uh, townhome, I came across a legal document. It was a name change for me, so my original name was John Jorgensen. That's the only link or only clue I had to my origins. And frankly, you know, after 60-some years of not thinking about it, it never really occurred to me. I was very comfortable in the luck I had in the family that I grew up with. It was a wonderful family. It was a wonderful upbringing. Uh, again, it wasn't very musical. <laughs> but uh, somehow the music rose to the top. Uh, I did... 23 and me, you know, with the advent of the DNA things. Right. Uh, because I was curious uh, about myself medically. Right. You know, because uh, after 60 some years of saying, well, do you have a family history of heart disease? How would I know? How would <laughs> I know? Exactly. So I, I was curious and, you know, it came back and said, <laughs> you are Western European. Like, duh, okay. Uh, then another friend told me about how he had found his adopted family, blah, 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 with Ancestry.com. Mm -hmm. So on almost a lark, I did Ancestry.com. It was out of curiosity more than anything. Uh, I was I've long past having a burning crisis about where I came from. Right. And I get this notice, hey, you, we may be cousins. Okay. And got another one, you know, we might be cousins. We had a match. Okay. Uh, got another one. I think you're my uncle. And I went, okay. And so I didn't really know what to think right. of it. Uh, and so this Suddenly a whole new family is appearing. Well, this guy says, look, I'm, I'm into mysteries and I'm into genealogy. Do you mind if I research this? I went, no, no, go for it. <coughs> oh, excuse me. And so then I uh, I get another hit saying, hey, it's, uh, I think we're brothers. And to make a long story shorter, <laughs> uh, turns out I have eight siblings. Right. Two of which have passed away. Um, I, I now know who my father and mother are. Right. And the, um, the husband of my late sister, Kathy. So I guess it'd be my half-sister. We share 